I'd like for you to turn to 1 Thessalonians, a little epistle to the Thessalonians. And I want to read a couple of verses or three in the second chapter. It has in the uh, order of service verses 11 and 12. I want to go back and pick up verse 10 of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devotedly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now I want to read the latter verse, the uh, verses 11 and 12 from the NIV, the New International. Listen, that goes. For we know how we, for you know how we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into His kingdom and glory. Now, you know that the Apostle Paul is talking about his own ministry style, but in so doing, he gives us a graphic illustration of how he believes a father should relate to his children, comforting exhorting and urging them to live lives worthy of God. Now, I, I mentioned this morning in my Sunday school class that, um, you know, I asked some of the guys how long it had been since they got a corsage, you know. We, we, we do all these great things for mothers on Mother's Day, but I, I, I kind of feel, really kind of feel neglected, to be honest with you, you know. I brought it up to, my, to the staff, you know, what should we do here this morning? And they all went thumbs down on giving anything away. So uh, about all we decided to do was have the, the father stand, was ready to do that, and Mark had everybody stand, you know, on that last verse. But I think that fathers are more important than most people realize. Every boy needs a father to, as a model for life. And every little girl needs a father as a pattern by which she measures men. And every child needs a father. Billy Sunday was not right when he said in one of his sermons, you give a child a good mother and any old stick will do for a dad. I don't think that, that the single mothers here this morning trying to raise their children in a fatherless home would agree with that at all. Uh, in one of Cecil Osborne's books on the family, he tells a story of, that happened in Washington, D.C. about a, a high-ranking government official who came to a, a, a prominent psychiatrist in the city and said, I'm a busy man. I am involved in the affairs of government. You know how busy I am. I don't have time for my children. 
I'd like for you to resign your position, your job, and come and be my children's father. Money is no object. And the psychiatrist wisely said, Sir, there is no real adequate substitute for a father. I want to confront us this morning with the the importance, the, the magnitude of being a man and a father. To, to try to emphasize this morning the, the tremendous power we wield as men and the authority we possess as fathers. The power to encourage or discourage. On, on September the 17th, 1991, every system in um, Kennedy International Airport in Washington, D.C. shut down. The computers... The lights, the radar, the whole system shut down. And all the planes that were coming into Kennedy had to be diverted to another airport. And if you'd been one of those passengers sitting in the terminal, Kennedy International, on September the 17th, waiting for your next flight, you would have seen on the gigantic board, all flights are canceled. The whole system came to a halt. It was not because of some natural disaster like a storm or a fire. It was because of negligence. For in one of the main switching stations of AT&T, one of the employees ignored some warning signals, at least three of them, and he just ignored them until the whole system ground to a stop. And it became, it, it is one of the most... Um, uh, it was one of the biggest, largest electrical shutdowns in the history of this nation. I ask you men, have you been avoiding or neglecting warning signals that have been going off in your home, in your life, in your marriage? Have you been ignoring some of those warning signals and failed to realize the importance and the power what it means to be a man, to be a father. You don't have to be a heart surgeon to invade the chest cavity of your child. Every little boy's heart is already in the hands of his father. And every little girl's heart has already been exposed to his touch. And if a father breaks the heart of a child, and causes severe damage to the heart of that child. No team of heart surgeons in God's almighty world will repair it. Only the Almighty Himself will be able to restore balance and health to that child. John O'Dell, who is one of the uh, leaders of FCA in, uh, in Oklahoma, shared with us at the FCA banquet not long ago about his father. His father is Fayodell, a successful high school coach in Oklahoma, one of the most dynamic speakers I've ever heard. And Fayodell was coaching, years ago, was coaching in middle school at some little school in Oklahoma. He was coming down the hall, and there was old Chucky. And Chucky was kind of this chubby uh, football player, kind of not, not really a star and not really that smart, and he was kind of teared up, and all his peers were standing around laughing at him and mocking him. When Fayodale walked up, he said, what's the matter, Chucky? He said, well, one of the guys said, well, coach, you know what happened? He was laughing his head off. He said, 
Chucky's just told us he's going to be a heart surgeon. And they were laughing. And the coach, wise man, godly man that he is, he put his arm around Chucky's shoulder and said, Chucky, you're going to be the best heart surgeon that's ever been. I want you to make me a promise. I want to be your first patient. Well, the, the laughter and the joking quit. Six months ago, Faye Odell had heart surgery. You know who did his heart surgery? You guessed it, Chucky. He's now a successful cardiologist in Oklahoma City, and he performed this delicate bypass surgery on Faye Odell, this wonderful man. And when he kind of was coming to in ICU, he, the first face he saw was his cardiologist, old Chucky sitting there. Dr. Chucky now. You know. <laughs> and he said, uh, Coach, he said, uh, I just want to thank you. I don't know whether I ever have thanked you for, because what I am today is because of what you did for me back there when I was a kid, that day in hall. And he said with great amount of emotion, he said, you can't imagine, Coach, what it felt like, how awesome it was to hold your heart in the palms of my hands. How incredible this morning, fathers, that you hold in the palms of your cousins the heart of your child, your little boy, your daughter. How incredibly awesome is that? We watched on television uh, Desert Storm, and they paraded out those tanks, you know, and they showed us inside and out those magnificent tanks they used on the desert. Cost to the Pentagon $100 million. They no longer grumble along, you know, at a slow pace. They can go fast as a car. And they operate on, uh, you know, computers and radar, etc. $100 million worth of equipment in each one of those tanks and somebody said, why would the government take a $100 million tank that complicated and put it in the hands of an 18-year-old kid? Well, that's just the way it is. My question this morning is, why would Almighty God place in the hands of a careless, abusive, negligent father the heart of a child with incredible potential to love and lifelong devotion and trust in the hands of a father who couldn't care less. Well, that's just the way it is. Sadly enough, that's the way it is. They tell you about a man who's been in counseling now for years. He's 40 years old. 28 years ago, his heart stopped. At the age of 12, he came home from Boy Scout meeting. They'd given their instructions about camping out and the camp out weekend. And he had all those instructions and he hurried home to tell his dad his dad was going to take him camping. His dad was supposed to be home from work at 5.30. He got home at 7.30, too late, to join the caravan that went camping. But the father said to his son, uh, we'll go camping in the morning. Get me up early and we'll go camping. So early the next morning, he was waiting for his father to get up. Tried to wake him up, couldn't. Finally, his father got up at 9.30. Already had the camping gear. His boy already had the camping gear in the car. And his folks the news. He said, you know, son, he said, you know, I've had some problems with my back. And I just don't believe I can spend the day out there and tonight on the camping trip. Be a man about it. Be a man about it. Get your stuff out of my car. Have some responsibility, re responsibilities to do today. Little boy got his camping gear out of the car, put him in the garage. As he turned to walk in the house, he looked back, saw his father putting his golf clubs on his shoulders. 
getting in the car, headed out to play around to God? How do you restore the trust of a child that has once been crushed? For we as men have the power of life and death within our grasp. In one of Dalby's uh, little illustrations, he tells about watching that gut-wrenching anti-abortion film with some of his friends called The Scream of the Silent. He said when it was over, men just and women just fell on their knees spontaneously to pray. He said, uh, they were, we were praying for, for the mothers that had the, this unwanted pregnancy and for these unborn children and for the doctors and the nurses at the abortion clinics. And he said, well, I was praying. I just said, God, is there something we're missing here? And he said, God has said to me, pray for the men. For if it weren't for a man to impregnate this woman, there'd be no abortion issue. The power to destroy this nation is, in, is, is within the reach of men. Listen to me. You go into any prison in this country, 99% of the people on death row are men. And 95% of all the beds that are filled in the prison's country are filled by males. And you come up on the carnage of drunken driving, and we have a perfect example of us, of that. One of our own members was killed by a drunken driver this weekend. And 91% of the time, it's caused by men. And 75% of all the traffic accidents in this country are caused by men. And you turn through the albums, albums of wanted known drug dealers. 91% of them are men. And you line up the people who are responsible for sexual abuse of children. 95% of them are men. And you get all together in this room this morning, the people that are responsible for prostitution and drug sales. And you're looking at men, plain and simple. How long is it going to take us to realize that we as men have the power to destroy this nation and are so doing it? Let me tell you about Larry. Uh, Larry was one of these little boys that his father had so much to do. One day he... His aunt gave him a plastic baseball bat and a plastic ball. He rushed home to get his dad to play with him. His dad was working on a carburetor. He'd worked on cars all the time and had no time for his son. He went to his dad and interrupted him working on his carburetor. And he said, Dad, Aunt so-and-so has given me a baseball and a bat. Would you play with me? He said his dad raised up and looked at him and said, I need to get something straight. I'm your dad. I'm not your friend. Now listen to Gary Smalley as he tells about sitting in an airport, watching one day, waiting for a plane to come in. And some people came off of this plane. He said, standing there was an old man, obviously a granddad, had his granddaughter on his arm. And she was all excited, anticipating the arrival of her father. And he was standing there with this, this girl and this little girl, and they were watching as passenger after passenger came off the plane and into the terminal. And, and her enthusiasm began to fade into despair and, 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 
and, and sorrow. And his countenance began to change to frustration and anger. And finally she started to cry a little bit. And when the last person got off the plane and headed into the terminal, they turned to leave. And he said, all I could hear was the sobbing of a child. I want to contrast that with Sarah. Sarah's father died and she was going through some stuff, just kind of reminiscing. She was now 50 years of age. And she said uh, she, she found her old Bible she had as a kid, and as she kind of thumbed through it, she found two movie stubs and some crushed, dried flowers brought back the memory. She said she grew up in a home where they didn't have much. In fact, most of their clothes were hand-me-downs or they got in the missionary bar- barrel at the church. She said, when I was 14, I struck it rich. I got a job babysitting for a rich family in our church got some money together on my father's birthday. I asked him if I could have a date and take him out. We went to a movie. On his way home from work to pick me up, he stopped at the flower shop and got a bouquet of flowers and, and, and brought it to me. And we went to a movie. And after, after the movie, we stopped by and got a malt and, some hamburger, and a hamburger. And she said, I never will forget that hug he gave me when we got to the house. And he said, I love you, darling, and I want you to know I'm praying for you. She said, all the time that I was growing up, I never got off the track because I could never forget that word of my father, and I would never do anything to break his heart. The power to encourage, the power to discourage. He said that what a father is about is to comfort Interesting word, that word comfort in the Greek that's in the text. In the King James, it's, uh, in the New American Standard, it's exhort. In IV, it's comfort. It means to soothe or caress as an expression of love. Because it is such a powerful and pregnant word, it's like a diamond. It has facets, it has sides, it means several things. It means to honor that is, to show respect. And when we, what we honor, we value and we treasure so that by the thousand and one things we say to our child, other than God, you're the most important person in my life. It includes praise. It's what we say to them when we say, you can do it, go for it, I'm for it, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. It involves protection. It means that I say to my child, regardless of whatever happens, I'm going to always be there. And if something comes to you, it's going to have to go through me to get there. It involves protection. It involves the attempt of meaningful communication, listening. Not just finding what is fault, what is at fault with somebody and carping on it and harping on it, but to to find and to magnify what is good in the child and to communicate your feelings about what you see there, meaningful communication. Gary Smalley said that they did a little survey and they asked parents how much time they spent with their kids, and the average was five minutes a day. So they, they hooked up ice on some of these children 
Now listen to this. And found that the average father spent 20 seconds a day communicating with his kids in five-second segments. 20 seconds. And a child who watches an average of 50 hours a week on television and spends 20 seconds a day with his father, guess where he's, guess where he's getting his values established? Not only does it mean honoring, watch this, it involves meaningful touching. The word means to caress, like you see the father caress a child, stroking his brow and his hair as he sleeps. Meaningful touching. Now, show of hands, how many of you were born in 1951? Lift your hand. You, were, you remember when you were born? You, how many of you were born in, oh, okay, good. Bar? Rocky, two, 1951. A survey was done of the kids, the people that were born in 1951 and found that the most successful people born in 1951 and the most healthy people born in 1951 were people who had been, had experienced the demonstration of meaningful touching and love. I have a feeling that's true of these two men. Meaningful touching. Let me tell you about Jim. His friends uh, was with him when his father was buried. They were inseparable. And his friend came up to him after the burial and said to Jim, Jim, I want to tell you about something that happened one day in your home that has literally changed my life. You didn't know it, first time I've ever mentioned it. We were, we were standing in the hall of your house when your father came home from work. He was tired. You could tell he'd had a rough day. But he walked over to you and he put his arm around you and hugged you and said, Jim, I love you. And he said, that, has, that never happened to me. I never had that happen to me. But I was so profoundly impressed with that, I've never gotten over it. Meaningful touching. Being available is what that means. The caressing expression of love, it, it means to be available. Ken Chafin, my professor evangelism, of evangelism at seminary, said that one night he, he was getting ready to go out to a speaking, uh, to, to make a speak, to, uh, get speaking engagement, and, and his little girl expressed disappointment. He's going to be leaving home. So he said to her, well, honey, why don't you just help me with my speech? Let's do this. Let me, let me let you answer this question. A good father is, and you fill in the blank. A good father is, and she came up and whispered to him, little bitty kid, he, he, he knows how to catch a fish. I missed that, I struck out on that one. He knows how to catch a fish. He knows how to plant a flower. He knows how to fly a kite. He knows how to get a little cat out of the mud. And he said, all of a sudden it dawned on me that what she was describing was something she had seen me do. And in every situation, it cost me nothing. 
I, I didn't have to buy a thing. I just had to be there available. Now, Max Lucado is quoted around here like God himself. Let me give you his tribute to his dad. He was always close by, always available, always present. His words were nothing novel. His achievements, though admirable, were nothing extraordinary. But his presence was. He was like a warm fireplace in a large house. He was a source of comfort, like a sturdy port swing or a big, or, or, you know, on a big branched elm in the backyard. He could always be found and leaned on. During the turbulent years of my adolescence, Dad was one part of my life that was predictable. Girlfriends came, girlfriends went. Mostly went, but Dad was there. Football season turned into baseball season. Turned into football season again. Dad was always there. Summer vacations, homecoming dates, algebra, first car, driveway basketball, they all had one thing in common, his presence. And because he was there, life went smoothly. The cars always ran, the bills got paid, and the lawn stayed mowed. Because he was there, the laughter was fresh, and the future was secure. Because he was there, my growing up was what God intended growing up to be, a storybook scamper through the magic and mystery of the world. Because he was there, we kids never worried about things like income tax, savings accounts, monthly bills or mortgages. These were on Daddy's desk. We had lots of family pictures without him, not because he wasn't there, but because he was always behind the camera, Bart. He made the decisions, broke up the fights, chuckled at Archie Bunker, read the paper every evening. Archie Bunker is an old guy in a passion. Fixed breakfast on Sundays. He didn't do anything unusual. He only did what dads were supposed to do. Be there. Comfort. One last thought. It's dad's day. I get a little extra five minutes. Okay, here it is. He said that fathers not only encouraged as opposed to discouraged and comforted, but urged them to live lives worthy of God. Now, the interesting thing about that last statement is that it's placed in the context of this verse of Scripture. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devotedly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. So that this exhortation, this exhorting, is an exhortation that is, that is substantiated, that is validated by the way one lives. That's what he's saying. You see, there's no urgency in what you say to somebody about how they should live if it's not backed up by some example of that. In fact, it's mockery to urge somebody to live a life worthy of God if you're not living one yourself. So what we're talking about here is the urgency of the modeled life where we model the values, moral and spiritual values, for learning is, takes place not just from what we hear, but what we see and what we experience. As a matter of fact, behavior is more impressive than words. We more 
likely will copy what we see than what we hear. And it is a tragedy, are you listening? It is a tragedy when our public and private lives do not match. Here's a man in the desert, he's starving. And he looks out on the horizon and he sees hope and help. On the horizon is, a, is, is water and, and, and a greenery. He knows that if he can get there, he can get help. And so off the track and he heads toward what he sees, shivering and shivering on the horizon is the promise that he never reaches. It's called a mirage. There's so many families who are guilty, who have fallen under the trap of a mirage. We have this picture, this image that is not real that we project. And we're so afraid that we're going to lose our positions of, of power that we'll do anything to cover the, the reality of our mistakes and our failures. And so we begin to live two lives, a public life and a private life. It's called image management. It's what's happening on television that you've been hearing about in the last 48 hours continually concerning image and what is really behind the image. So we manage the image and we put on the mirage when the real is not there. It works okay except that the people in our homes know the difference. That's the tragedy of it, is that the kids know the difference between the mirage and the real thing. And not only is it detrimental, it's devastating. Would you have the courage this morning to lay aside the image for the sake of honesty? Well, what I do, you say, you begin with a recognition of the greatness of God and of your own weakness and need. This story, and I'm through. There was a place, a, a church, that erected a large statue. It was given, the money was given, was, it received a certain amount of notoriety. They were going to have this statue and unveil it. A reporter in the town came one day just to look at it. And he stood about 50 feet from the statue and looked at it. He could see nothing really outstanding about it. And he was thus going to write. It wasn't no big deal. It was no big deal. Until the janitor of the church came up and said, Would you like to... Would you like to come in to the position that you, you have to get in before you can really appreciate? This statue was made not to be observed 50 feet away. There's a certain position you have to get in to really appreciate it. Oh, he said, okay. You know where he took him? He took him down to the front of the statue and said, now get down on your knees. When he got down on his knees and looked up, everything looked different. 
Fathers, get down on your knees. And your children will look different. Your job will look different. Your way of living will look different. Would you pray? Our Father, I pray that in these moments that which compels the heart will be irrevocably and unquestionably felt. And that our decision today as a father, as a man, as a woman, as a, as a female, as a child, would be what you would desire of anyone who is willing to be down on his knees. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, for his sake. Now look here. I'm going to give an invitation. If there's a person here in this room today that does not know Jesus Christ, his personal Savior, come to him today. Bow before him your life, your faith, your trust. Give him your heart and life. Don't wait any longer. Today, give him your heart and life. If you don't understand all this involved, neither do I, but we'll help you know enough to become a believer, a Christian. Fathers, on down on your knee, my man. Men, we hold the power of this world in our hand. What are we doing with it? Is there a commitment you need to make to your family, to your God today? Church member, you'd like to join this church? Profess faith in Christ for baptism? What is there that God wants you to do? Get to your knees. Look at him, find out. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.